0: Realize getting back and forth from the campuses is not easy. And, oh, I think this is him.
1: <laughs> hey,
0: Michael? Yes. Ah, hello. No, that's okay.
1: The one accident.
0: That's quite all right. We're fine. So, yeah, don't get yourself settled. I'm going to put more hot water in here. Um, so, welcome, everybody. Thank you for coming. Um, I'm Mary Balkin. I'm spoken behind the back. Um, uh, the director of faculty development here with the English department as well. And um, so for the last two or three years we've been doing this session on asking the people who get the Researcher of the Year award um, to talk about how do they do it. (laughs) How do you manage to keep a research agenda going in the face of all the competing interests and all the 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 tugs on a faculty member's time. Um, So shut this in please ignore this this is my life now a little post-it note stuck on everything <laughs> it's very sad um so anyway um i think it might not be a ba- hey elizabeth come on in drag the chair uh let's see here why don't you pull one up we got one there oh good perfect so um let's see actually i think i need this again for a second so um i uh put out a call and invited um uh, try to touch different areas and get people from different places to, to talk about it, to, to present on this session, um, and so we have four people today, hold on, let me do this, I can't talk and type at the same time apparently, um, to talk about what they do. It, this, this is really informal, as are most faculty development events, right? So. Um, We'll go around and introduce ourselves. Um, so the four people, and you're going to hear their name again when they introduce themselves. So the four people who are going to be talking to us today are uh, Robert Kelchin from College of Education and Human Services, Michael Fontaine uh, from the School of Health and Medical Sciences, Mark Molesky um, from the College of Arts and Sciences, and Courtney Starrett from the College of Communication and the Arts. Uh, but I think it also helps so we know who each other is. I just asked them to talk about um, you know, what is it they do. Do they have any sort of tips, techniques, um, strategies that help them to keep scholarship moving in the face of adversity, which is, you know, teaching and service? I guess I don't know. <laughs> you know, how do you get it to happen? Um, so I thought we would just go um, after we introduce ourselves. we will just go right down the line. I'll ask Robert to go first, and then Michael, then Mark, then Courtney, and um, you know, I asked them to do. I don't even remember, like five to eight minutes, something like that, just quick, nothing formal. Uh, but, um, and then, thank you. And then we'll have some time, hopefully plenty of time for Q and A and to chat with them and so on. Uh, so, um, I've introduced myself, well, let we go. Um,
2: I'm right. Kathy Neville, I'm the Associate Dean for Graduate Studies and Research in the College of Nursing. I'm new to Seton Hall, I was a retired professor at Kane um, and the role of being the associate dean, it was a new position and much of it is really increased helping the f- be a r- resource for the faculty in the college of nursing and scholarship and research and um, in the past year we've done really well. We have six uh, publications from faculty and uh, we were awarded the SAMHSA grant for the opioid epidemic with SHIMS and the school of medicine. So we're cooking. Nice.
3: Uh, I'm Liz McDermott from uh, the College of Nursing. Um, um, my title is Assistant Dean for Student Success, but I did finish my um, dissertation in higher education a few months ago, so I'm um, trying to, uh, you know, capitalize on that momentum and, um, you know, balance the responsibilities of a full-time job and I also just had a baby. So any um, <laughs> tips you can give me would be <laughs> great yeah, on
4: managing time. And stuff. Elizabeth McCray from the College of Business. Uh, nothing exciting in my life I'm finishing a dissertation or having a baby, but uh, I'm still trying to stay research productive because someday I'd like to go apply for full. so you, know, you gotta have a track record to do that, so. Mm-hmm. My is Christine Lowe. I teach in the College of Communication and the Arts. This is my first year on a
3: tenure track line, so I am just to hear about how you guys did it, and I'm having a baby, so it um, mm-hmm.
5: be difficult, I'm sure. <laughs> mm-hmm. Thank you. My name is Roger Alfani from the School of Diplomacy. I teach uh, Johnny and uh, I have a book in production, so I want to get some tips and how to get acquainted with uh, everything that you're doing. Uh, my
6: name is Joey Huddleston, uh, also in diplomacy, also first year on uh, a uh, tenure track line. I started a uh, Kind of ambitious data collection project um, this year that I'm trying to develop for my book project. So you know,
7: the consistent application of of time there is going to be really important. So, my name is Mark Molesky. I teach in the history department. Uh, I made full professor last year, uh, and I specialize in European history, European cultural and intellectual.
5: I'm Brian Pilkington. Uh, I'm in bioethics. Uh, This is my first year here, and I am one third in uh, nursing, one third in the School of Mm -hmm. Health and Medical Sciences, one third in the new medical school, and affiliated with philosophy. So uh, I'm interested in how people have successfully navigated some of the interdisciplinary research endeavors, um, because there's a lot of great possibilities, but sometimes one might find themselves falling through some cracks. <laughs> and I'm, I'm Robert Kelchin. You'll hear more from me in a minute. I'm an assistant
6: professor in education leadership, and this is my last year on the tenure track. Mm. So, you're under review right yeah? It's through the university committee sitting in, at the
5: provost's desk. Oh.
6: That's what I'm running it. That was really <laughs> ominous.
1: It's like, going to leave us or something? <laughs> 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 yeah, no, like, so I was trying to
3: figure like, am I on the last year
1: of my tenure track? Oh, I guess so. <laughs> That's, congratulations.
0: Congratulations. So, so, yes. Yes, I was done.
2: Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm Courtney Starrett. I'm in communication and the arts. Um,
3: I make art, um, so I might be the odd one here in on this panel. Uh, but I, um, yeah, I'm also uh, in my last year of the tenure track here, and so we're waiting to hear from
5: the
6: program. Mm-hmm. I am uh, Jason Tran. I'm the director of Coral Activities, and I just finished my fourth year review um, of the tenure track and, um, I always enjoy doing lots of collaborative projects, and, um, I do a lot of, um, guest conducting and artist residencies in a lot of different
0: places, And he'll be on the forthcoming talent show, faculty talent show, yeah. March 7th, <laughs> be there or be square. On my third <laughs> There you go, yes, right, <laughs> exactly.
1: Uh, I'm Michael Carhart, and I'm a grad student in the higher ed program.
3: I'm Melissa Martini. I'm the graduate assistant for the Center for Faculty
5: Development.
1: I'm Michael LaFontaine. You'll uh, we'll hear about from me a little bit more. But I'm in my eighth year in the School of Health and Medical Sciences. And um, unlike some of you guys, uh, Shim's folks are 12-month contracts. So when I explain kind of my keys, part of it is the fact that I'm here 12 months. <laughs> Hi, I'm
5: Sima. I'm a graduate student at College of Education.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. Hi, I'm Ron Chen, Associate Professor for College Education, in
0: the same program as Robert Couching. Hey. Okay. <laughs> good. I see some of you brought colleagues. That's a good thing. <laughs> All right. So, Robert, you want to kick us off?
6: Sure. So I'll kick off with a, a quick thank you to Ron for sitting down in, in my office late on a Monday night, my second semester here, mm-hmm. and talking about what your plan with research productive going? So I think that's been useful. So thank you for that. First thing, take care of yourself. You can't do this if you don't have energy. You need to both set some time away from work and do something else that recharges you in some way. I like working on my old 1861 Victorian house and running. And I do my best on weekends not to do too much work. I may do an hour right before dinner and that's about it because the joy of an academic life is, you get to choose most of the hours you work each week, but you can work basically as many hours as you want. Mm -hmm. And the way the job is set up, you may need to work a lot of hours. Mm -hmm. And another thing is keeping time allocation in mind. What's the time allocation that you're actually being evaluated on? And that varies somewhat across departments, somewhat across role, best I can tell, I'm something like 40% teaching, 40% research, 20% service, which means if I'm spending more than two days a week on teaching and dissertation mentoring, there's an issue with time balance. And I have to protect some of that time to do research, because ultimately, that's a key part in both tenure and then promotion to full professor eventually. And I try to hold certain days for each thing. Usually I teach on Mondays and Wednesdays. And those are the days I'll dedicate to teaching (laughs) student meetings and trying to get through the kind of the insane task of chairing 16 dissertation committees. So prepping in advance is key. I try to go into a semester with a course prep whenever possible. And that helps manage when everything else comes up. Second, try to structure things around your schedule whenever possible. I think there's a running joke with my dissertation students at this point that I read dissertations on the train to DC. I tell the students, here's where I'm going. Get me stuff before then because I have a five-hour round trip to read. Or when I have assignments for a class, I try to get them around a a big cross-country trip so I can read papers on the plane. And it's finding the way to use that travel time for meetings most efficiently and trying to save some of that really high brain power time for writing because I find it much harder to, to write than give detailed feedback to students. And if I need to do a little bit on an evening or a weekend for reading dissertations or on a plane or a train, that's much easier than trying to try and get writing done there. Trying to dedicate blocks of time. I do my best to come to campus the days I teach and whenever I have student meetings, but I try to structure things so I'm not here every day. This is the first Tuesday I've been on campus in a long time. Mm-hmm. And the two-hour commuting with an accident reminded me why I don't do that too much. Uh. But I try to, most of my students are part-time students, full-time professionals. I have a lot of phone meetings, video meetings with them. And then lots of calls with policy groups, journalists, and that sort of thing. But I try to block off a couple blocks of time, half days every week, where I can mainly focus on trying to keep up with some right- Another big thing is building a network of collaborators. That this is a fairly small university for research. There aren't many people here who do the same thing you do. And building that national network is important to access collaborators with more res- resources, for example, who can help with graduate assistants, who can help with research grants. And those are all <coughs> the types of people who are going to be needed to help you get that reputation for full professor. That they know. Once you're known, it's easier to get letters saying that you're known in the field. And then finally, try to keep that pipeline going. That it's hard at this point in the semester to do anything, but working with some collaborators, and even if it's just trying to get half a day a week to work on some research, making sure the pipeline doesn't completely run dry before you can refill it when you have more time. So I'll leave it at that, and I look forward to a discussion later. I'll go. I
1: mean, there's four of us, right? You're right there. Okay. Um, (laughs) So... uh, I I think the first thing is, the most important thing is just having a plan. Um, I usually set my agenda, you know, uh, I joke around that I have like a two-year schedule, two to three-year schedule in the sense that if I know that I want to apply for a grant, I have like basically two years lead-in where I have some feasibility, preliminary pilot data, some data collection, get through all the minutia, get all the bugs out, you know, locally collecting, and then when I'm ready to apply, I have preliminary data. I've got a pretty good idea what I want to do, and then I know that I'll be competitive when I, you know, uh, apply. And just as a frame of reference, when I first came here in 2010, I guess it was, uh, 2011, um, was ready to start. I was like, yes, I've got relationships with the Department of Athletics. I'm going to submit my IRB. IRB says, we're sorry, we can't review your research here because it's too risky. And I was like, what do you mean it's too risky? And, and so the running joke was like, well, it's doing things more than breathing and you know, paperwork, because we're asking people, you know, and we're doing stuff with people who are injured. So my research here on campus has focused on athletes who sustain concussions. And my background in grad school was learning, you know, about those individuals, and and so when I got back into academia, because I was outside of academia for a number of years before I came, you know, to the university setting, I just had this need and want to do it. So when it became known that the IRB would not review the work, we talked about relationships. So call up Dean Schulman, and I'm like. What am I going to do? A couple months later, one of the affiliates' uh, hospital systems agreed, so I'd trailblaze that. A couple years later, that affiliate was no longer there. We have Hackensack, so I had to <coughs> trailblaze that. So there's always bumps, and you always have to plan. Why I said, like a two year plan, two year window. And so the, the positive outcome was that we were successful in getting a grant from the New Jersey Commission for Brain Injury Research. Um, we just got a no-cost extension. So we're gonna, it's going to be basically a four-year, about $600,000 grant uh, performed here on campus. Um, and so, so that, that's part of um, what I wanted to share with you, is have a plan. Um, don't be discouraged, because there will always be roadblocks. Um, and, and character build, is built when you have to figure out what to do, and, and how to how to work through those situations. Um, so so having a good relationship with your direct reports, your chair, your dean, those are going to be essential to helping you get on the right path. And so I'm I'm really I'm grateful for that because now, you know I've I've got a national presence um, in this arena, and have some fairly high visible visible um, publications, and, and several more coming out. Uh, in in the next year or so. So having a plan, having good relationships with your administrators um, is key. And then similar to what he said, just, just time management. So in addition to my like two or three year plan, I also have a semesterly plan where once I know where I'm teaching, when our meetings are, I can filter in around that. So I know that I got lucky this year that, you know, my classes are on a Tuesday, or one of my classes on a Tuesday, and we always have meetings on Tuesday during college hour. So it's like, great. I'm not losing a day now having to figure out meetings. So if I'm teaching two or three days a week, I make sure that I (coughs) compartmentalize my prep, my meeting, my office hour on those days where I'm teaching so that I have a solid two days to commit to myself, to commit to my own work um, and use the opportunities that are here. Once I have those things established, um, then I just kind of figure out time management. So, so life always happens. We have some folks who are expecting. We, we, my wife and I have been fortunate. We have four children. Um, so I joke around with my students that it's not the piece of paper on the wall. It's how much hair you have left. (laughs) And, and how the circles under your eyes, um, really look. Um, and I will say that the energy, the joy, the enthusiasm of just being immersed in that intellectual process is amazing, and you do have to find balance. Um, and, And so similarly, I do try to punch in, punch out in terms of the nuts and bolts, but sometimes you just can't ever turn your mind off. And so I brought this little thing with me, is that sometimes some of the best clarity that I have and how I want to articulate things happens when I'm trying to fall asleep. Right. Mm-hmm. And this dates back to when I was doing my dissertation. So I get up, I write, and then I'm able to rest easy. And, and, and I wrote probably two-thirds of my dissertation document <laughs> at, after midnight through that, I guess, that worry book. Mm-hmm. So having a plan, having good relationships with your administrators, effectively managing your time, and then also understand what you want to get out of it. Like, if the goal is to put things on paper so that you can be competitive for the tenure track. Now, I'm a contractor. I'm not on the tenure track, so I don't necessarily have to go that route. I don't have to, like, figure it out. But having said that, um, in my eight years here, I'm probably north of 40 papers, peer-reviewed papers. The grant that I have here at Seton Hall plus I have active collaborations at another site. So in total we're, we're talking probably about 10 or 12 million dollars of active research funding. And so it's, it's really trying to compartmentalize. But it's not just being able to put those numbers down. It's the intellectual engagement, the joy, the enthusiasm. Like I'm having so much fun going down these different paths that I've actually just recently started going back to school. <laughs> it's kind of crazy. Um, where the research is taking me a certain direction, and it's been a number of years since I've taken those courses, so I just found like an online MOOC, and I'm doing a certificate in genetics and genomics, because that's where my research is taking me, so I have to commit myself to growing, and then also helping me better put out my, my product.
0: So I mean, you're not in the tenure track, but you do have a reappointment process. And yeah, there is we a we are we are basically three-year
1: right. contracts, right. and so yeah. every three years we have to reapply. And our model is again teaching service right. and research, with 18 credits being our teaching load, the stuff that we sign up for, plus the stuff we're assigned to for right. service, and then however much you want to put into the research, with the expectation <coughs> that some product should be produced over that three-year window. Okay. Thank you,
0: mm-hmm. um, Mark. How about we turn to you? You're back there,
7: <laughs> no hiding behind the scroll. Well, <laughs> theoretically, uh, staying productive shouldn't be that difficult for anybody. In this room. Theoretically, right? <laughs> um, we've all we're all here uh, because we've jumped through a lot of hoops. Um, we have uh, you know sterling letters from um, graduate school and, and, and people we've worked with in the field. Uh, we know how to achieve things academically and scholarly um, and so um, first bit of advice is to is simple is to sort of continue to do the things uh, exercise the habits the specific habits uh, that have worked for you in the past uh, and not do the things um, that haven't worked for you in the past now my, my fondest wish uh, as a scholar is that I could get it up at 4 in the morning uh, and write from 5 a.m. to 9 a.m watching a famous historian on television, say that's how he wrote his great history of the French Revolution. Big brick of a book uh, took him nine months. Wow, I can't do that. I can't get, I'm not a morning person. I cannot, you have to put a gun to my head to do it. I write in the evenings. And um, there's no way I can change that. Um, so I have to kind of go with my biology, go with my biorhythms, uh, and not feel guilty about the fact that get up uh, at the crack of dawn. Uh, Academic work, of course, is very individualistic. Um, It's a lonely process sometimes. And so, again, you have to personalize uh, your academic life to a certain extent. You know, get get advice from other scholars and friends, but don't feel guilty that you're not doing the things exactly the way they're doing, because you've already done it the way you've done it. You've done it uh, successfully. Now, Of course, teaching and service, especially for uh, younger scholars, assistant professors, uh, tends to get in the way, as does life. And um, sometimes, specifically if you're a a junior scholar, what you might want to do is ask your chair uh, sort of to assess how things are going. Um, You know, it is ultimately going to be scholarship in which you're going to be uh, assessed tenure and for full professor but you obviously have to check the boxes for teaching and service you have to do those two things well and the person that really knows has a sense of whether you're doing those things well is your chair uh, so the, and chairs I think want you to reach out to them uh, you know if there's if there's a problem eventually they'll probably get to you but if you come and say um, I just want to talk a little bit you know, don't wait for the third year or the fourth year review Kind of clear the air and say, I'm doing this and I'm doing this. Is that that okay? Um, and so then you'll know where you stand. It, sort of at any given moment, uh, and um, I think that really helps your scholarship knowing that the other boxes are checked and you almost, and you have that plan for the next few years. I'm going to uh, run for Senate or I'm going to join this committee or that committee. Um, and the chair thinks I'm doing enough in the history department or whatever department you're in. Um, and that kind of will allow you to then focus on, on your scholarly pursuits. So a few things that I think in general that, that can help uh, all of us uh, is, it's already been said by, by Rob, you have to block off time. Um, for Rob, it's not weekends. I work on weekends, you don't work on weekends. Um, some people uh, you know, uh, have different schedules, uh, family life um, you know, intrudes. So you're going to have to figure out what works best for you. Um, Know how to say no. Um, You you should, for the most part, when your chair asks you to do something, say yes. But if it's just too much, um, you're allowed to say no um, and explain why. Um, And as long as you're explaining why, um, usually uh, you can work out a compromise with those who expect um, you to. To, to perform service, uh, et cetera. Um, deadlines are crucial, uh, real deadlines. So uh, if you say, in a month or two months, I'm going to give a chapter to a colleague to look over or to send it to your advisor or mentor, uh, make sure you do that. Uh, even if the last few pages are a little rough, get it done, and then move on uh, to the next chapter. Uh, the worst, or the best thing, uh, in I think the scholarly life is a sense of of you're making progress, that your wheels are not spinning. Um, however, sometimes you just have to say, you know, this week I have to attend to other things. Uh, don't feel guilty about that. Do those things, and then uh, the next day, uh, Monday morning, you know, get back uh, to your s- scholarly work. Now, most problems, I think, more for historians, but maybe for for some. Uh, people in other fields arise when one finishes a significant project and has to move on to another project. For historians, it's books. Uh, Sometimes you spend 10 years or more working on a a book, uh, and then you have to reorient your entire scholarly life uh, on a next project. And that is a dangerous moment. Um, Now, most of us have placeholders or new projects that we want to work on. so uh but that doesn't always it, it doesn't always work out that way so what i would say the best thing to do uh would be to use your old the scholarship in your old project uh, to spin off articles um for example i wrote my a book that i published a few years ago in the lisbon earthquake uh, i realized that i had a number of possible articles I could spin off. Uh, One was on medical triage. Um, I believe the first uh, example of medical triage uh, occurred in the aftermath of this horrible earthquake in 1755. Uh, And I mentioned it in my book, but it really needs to be expanded into an article. And so um, even though I've sort of put the Lisbon earthquake project behind me, uh, I realize until my next book is published, which will be in a few years, um, I should still mine a lot of that research that I, that I already have and I know very well that's before me. And, and the problem with writing books is that it takes you a few years to do research, uh, you know, in that field before you can even write your first article. And then, as I say, sometimes it takes ten years before the book comes out. And so that's a good time, I think, that you can use the old research, uh, at least as much as possible. So, Uh, my message uh, is one of optimism Uh, all of us uh, have the ability uh, to be productive and to stay productive but it sometimes as as has been said before uh, it sometimes helps to sort of step back and assess the situation objectively and ask for advice uh, if one uh, runs into a roadblock from a mentor sometimes outside of the university is very helpful it certainly chairs Colleagues and friends uh, at Seton Hall, um, and that's been helpful for me in the past, and I, I have no reason to think it won't be helpful for you.
3: Thank you. Thank you. Okay. No so, now that it's all done, <laughs> I, mean, I feel like I'm just going to reiterate, kind of like what, but maybe from a different perspective. Right. So I, I feel, I feel like all research is a creative activity. So, like mine is directly kind of. Um, and so I've kind of, uh, you know, a lot of the same things, um, kind of a, a disciplined approach to time management is really important for my practice. Um, so being able to manage the week and manage the time and understand what points of the day that I'm most productive. So I know that if I have writing to do, that has to happen in the morning, not at 5 or 4. But you know, it has to be kind of that first thing. Um, And so then I'll do committee work at night because that's a little like, you know, kind of less creative in the sense of what I'm trying to to output. Um, But you know, reserving that and then having you know, blocks of time that I, I can kind of explore and experiment in my studio is really important. It's also important for me to have a dedicated space for that work to happen. Um, I do my course prep either at my dining room or my kitchen table, but I never I never try to do my um, my design work there, so I have a, a studio space that I am able to, to kind of, when I walk into that space, it helps me kind of readjust my, my mindset and my priorities so I know that this is where I am to do this type of work and that to kind of keep those boundaries clear is really important to me. Um, I do, I've a been of a commute, and I've never really thought of it as a burden because I call it my audio research time so I find it really important to use that time to, to listen to audiobooks. I'm also kind of weirdly disciplined in that, like I listen to all nonfiction during the semester but I, during finals week I get to listen to not <laughs> so, I like, give myself like a reward at the end, so. um, but the, I, I listen to mostly books on creativity and different you know like things that that inspire my mindset and kind of motivate me um, and reading is a really important part of my creative process and I don't find that I I also have two small children so I find that, that that's a hard thing to carve out time for I can I can do it sometimes but I um, the reading is really important to kind of helping my mind get through where I go creatively in my work, and so the audiobook time is really, really important. That's one thing I value greatly. Um, I recently learned that Ruth um, Bader Ginsburg, in, in law school, would um, pick up her her I uh, think her kids and. Um, you know, between like three or four in the afternoon and bedtime, like that was that was family time. And so I, you know, kind of to help alleviate some of the guilt that I sometimes feel because I, I do tend to work very strange hours because of the family life and just being able to accept and like keep that um, kind of precious and know that I'm not, I do not check emails when I'm with them. I do not try to think about work because that just like, it makes me really crazy. So I keep all of that for when they go to bed. So luckily they're still small, so it's 7.30, so then I can start working again, but then I can work till 11. You know, and I'm able to kind of keep my my schedule that way. And you know, I I do teach two days a week, which is really nice and helpful, and I keep those to teaching. Um, And then trying to give myself an entire day in the studio. I was doing better before this year. This year I've kind of fallen off a little bit, but I think that being, uh, being able to kind of understand the creative flow and the process, when you work best, and like what times, you know, and they're not, you know, they're not the same for everybody. And I think being able to just, uh, I always tell my students that you know, being an artist is, is a lifestyle. It's not, it's not a career choice, it's not a career, it's, just, it's my life, it's what I do. And I think all of us as academics have that same sentiment, like this is what we do. We don't just go to work and then go home and unplug it and it's part of our existence so being able to kind of keep yourself disciplined and saying this, this is my, my mental space for this and this mm-hmm. is my mental space for this. Um, uh, let's see, what else do they have? I think, yeah, that, um, being able to schedule your classes also is, is not, it's a luxury not everyone can do that, but I try to, I try to keep my classes out, outside of my um, best writing time, for example. So if I have an afternoon class, that's better because if I do have something I have to write, um, then I can get that done before class and then I'm, I'm able to kind of get go into class and be like I'm not like waiting to get out of class to go do that thing um, deadlines like as, as an artist I have to, to seek them out and I think that they're they're very important I'm very deadline focused like I sometimes can't work on something and then you know I'll, I'll kind of spend 50 hours in like three days um, on it and so thats that's part of how, how I get things done. And so kind of being able to anticipate that and know that, OK, that week is probably a bad time to say yes to anything else, because I have a deadline, and being able to honor that. So, And then I also allow myself, um, I, I try to schedule every couple months I put in my calendar like um, a day or a morning where I'm going to research opportunities. So as an artist, I kind of have to seek them out. So I'm um, when I'm producing work, I'm making it, but I don't necessarily have a place to put it. So then I have to seek out. Uh, Show um, exhibitions or things like that to submit it to, and it's probably the same for you know if you're mm-hmm. conferences. So I, I kind of try to put in my calendar like today's the day you're going to look for opportunities, and then I can put all that stuff back together. And, and using old research is really important too. So like all the work that I've made before just keeps you know the more that I show it, the more visibility it gets, the more um, it's likely to be written about, and that kind of snowballs. So being able to show things as I'm making new things. Um, and I, yeah, I do um, definitely come into this kind of like slump after finishing something. Or when you have something that had kind of a bit of success, and then all of a sudden you have to um, figure out what to do next and, and not talk yourself out of all the ideas that you have, I think, really hard. So just like allowing yourself to kind of think of it as play. So being able to schedule lab time or studio time where you can go in and without the pressure of having to make something fantastic is really important to me. And that's a har- that's hard. That's not something I do well or like, I, I want to do that more, it's <laughs> mm. my ideal. Um, but yeah, I mean, other, other than that, like everything kind of rings true and kind of, there's a lot of common sentiment between everything,
4: okay.
0: so. <clears throat> That's great. Um, all right, so questions, comments, I mean, feel free to share your mm. own.
4: I'd like to just, just build yep, on that sure. concept of play, because mm. I don't think it gets enough attention. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, a two gentlemen who, uh, and of course their names now are escaping me, but they won the, a Nobel Prize for graphene. And the way they f- discovered graphene is they were, every Friday they mess around in the lab just having fun. And they were doing something with a pencil and the pencil got dirty. And so the one guy was like, well let's just use some scotch tape to clean off the tip of the pencil. And that st- struck the light bulb. And they were like, well. Because everybody knew theoretically that a single layer of gra- of uh, carbon was possible, but they, nobody could figure out how to do it. And so, but this tape on the pencil point, you know, gave them the spark of the idea to um, to eventually discover. do a use scotch tape, obviously, yeah. but, but that was that concept of an adhesive and, and all that stuff uh, was. And they're the only scientists who have won both the ignoble award for, electro, uh, to, for uh, levitating a frog using electromagnetism and a Nobel Prize wow. for, for graphene. But because they play every Friday, they block off a ton and to just awesome. mess around yeah. in the lab. And I, I wish I had the discipline and probably somebody to do it with. I think it's more fun to, but to play.
1: I guess what I would follow up to that is, is, is also give yourself the flexibility because for as much as we want to try to compartmentalize our time, mm-hmm. I'm sure everyone at this table has sat down like, I have four hours yeah. and nothing comes out. Right. Mm-hmm. So give yourself that that it's okay, that if you, you don't necessarily have something there, just, just get up and go do something else. Mm-hmm. Um, and also understand that you may get frustrated when you're caught up with a lecture or grading or something, and you're like, ah, I have to do this, and I can't because I, like, there's that competition. So also, my trusty book, it's my, kind of like my to-do list, uh, in the sense that if I'm engaged in other activities, and I hear something, I read something, I sign up for, I mean, um, I'm part of a number of associations, so I get those journals, but I also sign up for, like, the electronic tables of contents. For a handful of journals that show up whenever the new issue comes out, and so if I'm just sitting in traffic or um, wasting time, I'll thumb through the table of contents and and have that to go read later. So that when I'm on my time, I have I have like kind of a menu of things I can choose from to kind of fit what I want to do, because it's very like like has been said, it's very creative, and 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 so if you. Are trying to force creativity, it can be extremely challenging and very frustrating, and and can certainly set you back more than it can put you forward. So again, give yourself like a little book to write down things like to-do list, explore this, follow up on that, read this article, um, analyze the data this way, consider that. So that way, when you have that dedicated time, it's like. I'm, I'm so excited because I'm almost there and I have this thing to do. Like, I, I know what I can do with that time and I can just run with it when I sit down.
3: Mm-hmm. Can I add? That? Mm-hmm. So, I call them warm-ups. Like, when I have like a four-hour block. Like, I don't go into my studio and like sit down. like the blanks sketchbook page has never mm-hmm. shown me anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'll do something like I'll do a warm up, like maybe I'll make something, like I'll make a quick pair of earrings for a friend, or I'll knit something, or I'll do something that's like totally not not scholarly, but it's in that kind of um, you know, you're kind of warming up to the, whatever activity it is. So if it's like maybe write a poem or like write, you know, like do something that's just kind of fun, then you've kind of like broken that ice. You've, you've gotten past that first sketchbook page that's so intimidating mm-hmm. and, and just kind of said, oh, I've done this and then I put it, you know, put it away. And then like also understanding what kind of head space helps you have those ideas that don't come when you're sitting there kind of trying to find them. Mm -hmm. Those secret, you know, the ones that kind of sit in your subconscious and then just like pop out when you're going for a run. Like I find that like, I love yoga and I go to yoga a lot, but I find that when I'm in yoga, I'm really focused on my breath and connected to my body and I don't have those same kind of creative epiphanies that I do if I go running. So like that, there's something different about those two activities that offer me different insights or, you know, places to this, and I think they're both necessary, and mm. so, you know, knowing that and just being able to say, okay, well maybe it's time for a run, mm. because maybe then something comes up. I guess not
0: necessarily if you, if you overdo it. Mm. I never try to start, I try never to start with a blank page, so right, even if it's just notes <laughs> from like things. Yeah. Oh, I can't stand the blank <laughs> page, drives me crazy. Um, in fact, even when I write like letters of recommendation and stuff, I'll actually start with a formal letter I wrote. Even if I wind up deleting all of it, I feel like at least I have something there. So, And I actually learned a technique years ago. Um, it was actually a course called Writing as a Form of Self-Exploration as an undergraduate. And um, so the first day of class, he had us write continuously for, I think it was a half hour. We were not allowed to pick our pen or pencil up off the page. Um, and then by the end, the final exam was three hours of nonstop writing. Right, so you run lots of stuff. And the whole thing was about how, so the point being that as long as you keep the writing going, so when we got stuck, you would just have to set, you have to keep writing. So I don't know what to say, I don't know what to say, I have to keep writing, but oh my God, I have nothing to say and I'm stuck. And eventually it starts to come again. So that's a strategy I use sometimes too, where I just, I'll be typing gibberish sometimes. Oh my God, this, this sucks. This is the worst thing I've ever written. Oh my God, oh my God. And then suddenly there's the little pop through, because right, it's that frustration. of oh. um, How many multiple projects do you keep going? Because actually, yeah. No, I was
4: gonna say that, I, it's not something I do, but I have a colleague who always has three projects okay. going at a time, never more and right. never less. Right. And that way, when he gets stuck on one, right. there's always two it others, or yes. if he's sick of one, or and, and they tend to be at sli- slightly different stages of mm-hmm. completion. So you know, if he's feeling like he wants to do something really creative, he can work on the one that's kind of in the early stages. But if he just wants to you know, bang something out, then he gets the one that's almost done and just needs some editing or whatever. So I, I aspire to that, but mm. I haven't quite gotten myself. Yeah.
1: But having the multiple projects can, can certainly do that in the sense that one activity, because again, I, I, I work in two different clinical models where here I'm working with athletes who have concussions outside of the VA. I'm working with veterans who have spinal cord injuries. And to to everyone else, it's like, that makes no sense. They have nothing to do with each other. But when you look at what I'm studying and and how the two models present themselves, while I'm kind of over here, It's helping me get insight over here. But over here, it's like, oh, yeah. Plus, I'm also teaching foundational sciences. So it keeps me connected to the root of the information. So when I'm teaching, that keeps me grounded. And it keeps me understanding the principles here. That when I see something here, it's like, well, over here, that makes sense, too. So having multiple outlets, um, not that it's going to encourage a lack of focus. um, Just sometimes you have to have two sandboxes Mm -hmm. uh, that are somewhat connected but also somewhat tangential from one another uh, because, like, like Rob was saying, like, like he likes to do work on his home. And how much of when you're working on making cuts, sanding painting, whatever it is you're doing to your home, are you actively engaged in what you have to write, what you're thinking about with your scholarship? So for me, my my house, I have a, like a, a larger property. We have gardens. We have stuff like that for my kids to play in, and I find that when I'm there in that moment, it, it's like I wish I had two of me so I could have someone dictate or, or you know figure out to plot these things so when I actually have time to focus on it. It's there. So so again, it, it's having the freedom intellectually to kind of play and understand that you know playing in the different arenas is gonna help you keep from becoming stale.
5: Mm-hmm. Because
1: if, if you are really passionate about it, it's not work, mm-hmm. but if you are feeling the pressure to do it because you have to do it, mm-hmm. then it's gonna become a burden, and, and then it's not gonna be fun, and you're gonna dread um, that time and that responsibility. So, so for those of you who are kind of on the tenure track and concerned about you know going forward with the professorship, um, I would just say, ultimately, the number of products you may ultimately have looks good on paper, but ultimately when you have a conversation <coughs> with someone, their enthusiasm, their passion, their joy, like, like you, you know when a student connects with you, um, they, they, like, you just you capture it because they understand there's something you said that just motivates them. Or um, you're speaking to a colleague and you're just so, like, that was so amazing. What was it? It was their enthusiasm, their passion. Maybe not necessarily their time on task, but just how much they truly love what they do. Right. So, so don't forget to enjoy what you're doing. I mean, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
6: yeah, yeah, I I, I try to have probably about five to seven projects somewhere in the mm-hmm. outline to ready to send off to a journal phase. Mm-hmm. Part that's working with collaborators, working around their schedules, whatever interests me at the time, am I stuck on data? And then trying to make sure that within that that journal peer review pipeline, there are a number of things, just because the process is idiosyncratic, mm-hmm. and it is just painfully slow, mm-hmm. at least in education mm-hmm. and social yes. sciences. Mm-hmm. So it's keeping a lot of potential opportunities, mm-hmm. and then making sure you can tie those into some kind of coherent narrative when you're putting together that tenure statement. Right. And that's important.
0: That's true, yeah. That's yeah, say, yeah. Even yeah. if
6: you only have one project,
7: right. you can divide it up into different parts. Right, that's true. So if you're working on an article or a book um, and you just you just can't do any more writing for the day, it's late at night, mm. uh, what I do is I just start working on the footnotes or the endnotes mm. or the bibliography, things mm-hmm. that don't take as much gray matter to work on. Uh, and if, or if you're just tired during the day, um, um, reading, uh, doing research, then you could you know turn, turn to writing. Right. So don't, again, don't feel bad if you don't have the five projects or six mm-hmm. projects. There's ways in which you can divide up the work that you have in front of you, so that there's a variety of, of directions you can go at any right. point. That's
0: a point. Oh, wait, yeah, Brian. Right,
7: so <coughs>
5: I'm curious if anyone has tips for translating <coughs> the kind of work that you do, uh, sort of both for deans and administrators, and sort of generally for people who work in other areas. Uh, so being the person, uh, the only person in bioethics up at the new health sciences campus, everyone's super wonderful and all of that, but no one really does the kind of stuff that I do. There are concerns that are, you know, uh, that cross. So suggestions on how to translate it so you don't just get the, oh that's nice, yeah, you put out a paper, uh, but something that's sort of maybe a way to better explain the enthusiasm.
1: I explain a lot to my wife and my mother, Mm -hmm. Um, and my wife is far more intelligent than I, and my mother just is so sweet and she has a thousand questions. Sometimes she doesn't know what she's asking, but ultimately if I feel that they understand through our conversations what I'm doing, Mm -hmm. and they're asking questions that are about the work, not about what I'm doing. Like, like the, if, if we can tran- transition over to them understanding the implications. Like at first, my mom was like, you want them to get hurt? I'm like, no, no, no. If they get hurt, they can participate. And then she's like, oh, so we got over. That was a massive hurdle. Um, <laughs> um, and, and so just having that conversation with people outside of your bubble. Um, and, and ultimately, if you are able to effectively communicate to them, to someone who is not in your discipline, who may not even be in academia, Um, and they have an understanding and can engage in just a casual dialogue with you about your work, then I think that goes a long way in helping you find ways to articulate it to the people that, again, your direct report to. Because all the deans that you, you have three deans to report to and a host of other chairs that you're working with, so those nine or ten people may collectively have had five ethics courses between them in their training. (laughs) So the word bioethics, it's like,
5: oh yeah, okay.
1: But then it's like you get into the bogging of them down, they're like, ugh. So just try to find a way to connect what you're doing with um, what it is you actually want to do. Because again, I can give you a boilerplate statement that appears on the website of what I do. Um, from a technical perspective, but in terms of what it means to someone who probably doesn't care what I do to there, there's, a, there's a, the art of science is really helping to communicate to others and help them understand what it is you're doing. Mm-hmm. So just try to find ways to um, <clears throat> not quote philosophies, not quote quote you know certain, Dogma that is unique to individuals or that, that, that is mostly known to people who are in your discipline. Just try to find ways to bridge that gap to, to kind of be inviting and, and help bring those people into understanding what it is you do, why it's important, and what it means.
6: Mm-hmm. It, it's really helpful to try to write some pieces for a lay audience, just mm-hmm. a fairly well educated lay reader. So look at, for example, like what the upshot does in explaining concepts or. Conversation is all academics writing for a broader audience. And doing those sorts of shorter things can really help get your work out to other academics as well as potentially the broader public that really matters. Good question mm-hmm. uh, Do you also have to uh, channel your work to the IRB here? And how much time does <laughs> that? Yeah. I mean, your strategy was go around our IRB. No, I had, to, I had to
1: work with them to create the IRB. <laughs> so I had oh, to build I the see. wall I had to climb. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so again, the, the way the IRB works is that there are people from within the Seton Hall community as well as outsiders who come in mm-hmm. who have the, like, the effective expertise to review your work, to deem you know, whatever aspect of it is safe or non-safe, whatever risk there is. Um, because I was working with more medically oriented questions, the board wasn't constituted, so it had to get deferred to a board that was able to do so. Um, so I'm all in on IRBs, I served on IRBs and things like that. So probably the most important thing I would suggest is A, if you are unfamiliar with the minutia of the IRB here on the Seton Hall campus, um, reach out to the IRB chair. Mary Ruzika. Um, She's always
4: happy to talk to people
5: before
4: you start yes, the process. Yes, yes, yeah. yeah. sure absolutely. you know where the minefields are. Yes. So so have.
1: Don't be afraid to talk. Um, does your department have a pre-IRB or your, your school have a pre-IRB? Okay. Because in Shims we have basically a committee of faculty who we submit to, who just kind of look at everything, mm. um, or even just talk to peers, like mm. like who have gone through the IRB process who can provide you with some guidance to maybe articulate what some of the minefields are but at the end of the day Dr. Razika's you know has an open door especially if you are wanting to proceed with the least stress as possible because mm-hmm. <laughs> sometimes sense. it's it's more challenging to right, right. undo mm-hmm. something that right. you've done incorrectly right. than it is to actually just take the time to commit to learn the process, ask questions while you're doing it, and then submit as well.
2: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was chair of IRB for multiple years at, a, at an institution, and, and I don't see IRB as an impediment. I think it really does solidify your project. So the process of writing, going through IRB, is, is really very, very helpful. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to go back to the, the multiple projects thing just for a moment. Because I don't know how many of you know Marianne Lloyd. So, and you need to pay her office a visit one of these days. Because I have not been able to do this. I'm not this. Um, dysfunctional in that way, but the word, it was dysfunctional, not dysfunctional, but she's got Uh, a big poster uh, board, she's got like a big piece of oak tag on her office wall, and she is tracking her multiple projects with like little uh, poster notes at what stage they're at, too. So, you know, sometimes you've submitted something, and you can, if you're doing multiple things, you can even forget what you've done, right? And I just learned recently, this I thought was brilliant. So, um, we do both journal, uh, in English, right, both journal articles and books, and I do have three book projects going on simultaneously right now, two edited collections and a monograph, plus an article, two articles I'm working. So I always do multiple projects. You've seen me around here, you know that I can't just focus on one thing, so, but, this person, so what happens is you get an article back from a journal, it takes five to eight weeks, maybe, if you're lucky, I know, it's what they say in the journal thing. 21 More, days. more longer than that, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, no, no, you'll never get it back then. But, so you get it back, and then of course it hits, and you're like, ah, oh, now I have to redo this, so what, I can't remember who told me this, they actually have, in order of priority, with the top journal, so the one they send it to first, and then the next one, and the next one, and then they have a graduate student, or a work studies student, whoever it is, somebody working for them who immediately sends it out to the next one. So they don't have to, work. it's not sitting there in their email on their desk for a month while they get back to it to send it back out. Now of course, uh, for English, some journals would probably, some want think everybody would be using MLA, that's what we teach now, some use Chicago, so you, there might be formatting changes but if you can line up the first few, and it's a fairly straightforward send, it's just redo the cover letter maybe to say, you know, dear so-and-so, but I thought this was brilliant to have somebody actually helping you to move it to the next stage, because if you don't get, like, revise and resubmit, it's a flat-out no, and you know you need to find the next one, so, um, you know, that's a way in which I, and the other thing, so I do, is um, the two edited book projects are not alone. They're both with other people, so they will keep me moving forward. Right. I'm chugging along for a while, and then it falls between the cracks a little while for me. But then the next person steps up. Now he's ready. He's back from his conference, and, that, and so the other thing I love about working with more than one person is you can tag team it so that you know, it, yeah, things move along much more quickly than they would if I were doing it by myself. So, um, but those are just, especially as I said, go pay Marianne Lloyd to visit because I love her little post-it thing. That's fascinating.
4: Kurt Ruddhoff does that too. Oh, he does he? Oh, he's another one incredibly world. productive. And he has different tiers. Yes. And he, and the paper moves from an idea to the to data collection. Like, he, he, it just moves. Eventually, it goes yeah. off
0: the wall. Uh, Yeah, not that
3: organized. Yeah.
4: But. That would stress me out.
0: To see it all there. That's yeah, that would like, right get me mind. going. Yeah, yeah. I think
3: something with post-its in kind of the opposite way. Like so if I'm starting a project and like just the steps at which I need to mm-hmm. do the things and I'll put a post-it note in the grid and then like I, it's like a more satisfying than crossing it off the to do list, and then you can remove that, put right. it a pile, and yeah. see the process kinda go the other way. I just kind of count down to, like being done. Mm-hmm.
7: I use a spreadsheet
4: a spreadsheet to track every submission. Okay. Fabulous.
1: Yeah. I find it very gratifying to cross things out. <laughs> yeah. So, I like this to-do list. Like I feel like so accomplished and, like oh, I just knocked off I five things that. today. Right. Even if I had seven, hey, I took off five. five. Right. Um, and again it could be, you know, build um, the plot for this paper. Right. You know, update the endnote library. Update and, like, like it just uh, I've right. accomplished something cuz we can just spend hours right. and have nothing to show for it. Right.
2: The worst thing is having something hanging over your head. Yeah. Mm-hmm. you know
1: something's due.
2: You need know you should be. And so you get it done, and then it's done, and then you can go play, and mm-hmm. it's it's a relief. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm more in Courtney's camp. I know. So this past
0: weekend was completely dedicated to doing this conference paper that I, I needed to have for Wednesday, because I was determined that this was one I was not going to write when I actually got to the conference. (laughs) Which has happened far too often in the last few years. On the plane, in the conference, writing the paper, up late in the middle of the night, doing the thing. Yeah. We have to submit the paper. Oh yeah, see we don't have to yet do that for most of our conference sessions.
4: I think too many people. I'm sure they do.
0: I had a colleague show up with a handwritten paper once. That was a little odd. One thing I think I was going to
4: mention, but I forgot,
3: was sometimes procrastination is is helpful i think like there are certain times where if i have a if i have a presentation that i have to give and i start the process of prepping for it too early it consumes my life for far too long whereas if i waited like another week i'd have less time to do it and it probably wouldn't be that much different. It's just I haven't dedicated like as much because sometimes the work expands to fill the space. Like, that's a common thing, right? And so like I tend to like I can't start that yet. Like I have to give yeah. that some more time, right. even though I'm. You have to know yourself.
5: right? You have to learn yourself because yeah. there
1: there is like a double-edged sword where if you start too soon, mm-hmm. you're gonna tinker. Right. way too much mm-hmm. when the product doesn't okay. need to be affected if you've already finished it. Mm-hmm. But if you wait too long, then you're going to, again, create too much stress, mm-hmm. rush, and perhaps not put forward the product that you want. So you'll learn mm-hmm. what your timeline is, mm-hmm. um, especially as you get accustomed to teaching and serving and you get time under your time under your belt, um, that you'll, you'll know that, okay, I have to put this thing together, I need a solid two weeks to do it, I have to maximize my time now, plan my schedule, you know, give myself small goals, so that way it's not one massive thing, it's Mm -hmm. easily digestible, things I can cross off, and ultimately say I've accomplished something Mm -hmm. leading up to the final product being there.
0: Um, I would like to put in, because we're basically out of time, but a few plugs. So one is for uh, the summer writing retreat, which is the three days after commencement. Um, It seems to be really helpful for people. I've already got my rooms reserved, and it's a way to kind of kickstart the summer, so it's three days. I provide snacks throughout the day, coffee, tea, lunch, Um, we're going to be in the main lounge again, although I also grabbed the Chancellor's Suite again too, because last year the noise (laughs) drove us down into the hinterlands of the basement, most of us, not all of us. Um, Also um, Wright Club, there is a space reserved on campus, it's in the top floor of Duffy Hall, room 83. Um, and so it's listed on the faculty development website. Sometimes if you're here on campus and you're looking for a place to work, the other thing is I would say, please pursue the idea of the scholar study in the library, right? Again, if you wind up, if you find, especially if you've got a terrible teaching schedule that doesn't job with meetings for your department, your college, whatever, and um, you can also talk to, the, I'm, I'm pretty sure you can talk to the dean or over over there about jointly sharing a scholar study because right, there aren't that many of them but if you share it with somebody and you know that your per- schedule and theirs is not likely to coincide um then it's getting used more mm-hmm. um so but there's i think there's something you said for having a place on campus if you can work here now these are places not in your office um so you know again those are just resources that are around that you can take advantage of yes. But thank you all to our, our four fabulous presenters. Thank you, this is fabulous. Um, so this is, will be posted, the podcast will be up if you know somebody who couldn't make it or you just want to hear some of this again.